Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. Cranston, I will be reading um, from the book of Psalms today. If you could please stand for the reading of God's word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, church. Excited to be here with you. My name is Corey. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Good to be your uh, teaching pastor uh, for today. And so we're going to just kind of dive straight in this, and I'll set up where we're headed, where we're going, and then uh, I'll pray for us, and then we'll dive into uh, Psalm 1. But uh, really, the expectation for us for 2022 is pretty simple. Uh, We want God's Word to create such a great and incredible confidence in you. Uh, that the idea of any other gospel just sounds ludicrous to you. That's where we want to go for 2022, to be completely clear and transparent on that. That's our goal every year. But this year, as we said, as uh, elders, it's what we call pastors, our elders this year at our retreat, we were sitting there just thinking about this reality that, that Jesus wins. And if we actually believed as a church and as Christians in America and around the globe that Jesus won, that the church would look a lot less cowardice than it does right now. And so then the hope for 2022 is just to instill such great, good gospel clarity and depth in you that you can so quickly identify a false gospel that they, they just sound ridiculous. Does that sound good? Sound easy enough for us to accomplish uh, as a church? And so one of the ways we're, we're going to do that is we're going to do it by setting in the Psalms. Uh, we're going to spend about 20 weeks of this year in the book of Revelation. We're going to spend some time uh, looking at what's called the Imago Dei. What does it mean to be male? What does it mean to be female? Uh, What is marriage? What is singleness? How do you approach those things from a biblical perspective? But everything that we're doing is to instill in you this reality that Jesus wins. And everything that we're doing is trying to instill in you and help you acquire better what's called spiritual disciplines. And so we're starting that in the Psalms. We're going to spend two and a half months uh, just sitting in the Psalms as a church body here on Sunday, as well as within our missional communities. And so if you're not yet plugged into a missional community, this is a great time for you to plug in as we're starting something new, uh, starting something specific together as a church. All of our MCs are going to be coming back, coming together, doing the exact same thing for the next uh, two and a half months. And the hope uh, is that we would learn over the next two and a half months to start off our year quickly by slowing down, that the goal would be that we would learn to actually take time to sit with Jesus, that we would take time to sit at his feet, to actually sit with him and listen. Because the reality is, listen, this, new, this hashtag new year, new you, 
is nonsense, okay? New year, same you, if you don't change any of your behaviors from last year, right? Does that make sense? Nothing's gonna look any different if you don't look any different. <laughs> if you just do the exact same thing, expecting your year to look different, it's not gonna happen, spoiler, okay? So remove the hashtag from your Facebook, okay? You can delete it, no big deal. No one will even notice. The hope, though, listen, for the Psalms as we start this is that we would learn how to engage not only with Jesus, but that we would also learn how to engage our emotions. Uh, the majority of us don't know how to, I say us because I'm including myself in this, we don't know how to read our emotions. Uh, there's a real lack of what I would say is call emotional intelligence. And so emotional intelligence is the ability for me, for me to be able to think through how I'm actually feeling and then respond to that instead of just listening only to my emotions. Um, emotional intelligence is learning how to sit across the table from someone in your missional community or in the workplace or when you see them at CrossFit and to be able to gauge where they're at emotionally and then respond to them appropriately. If you notice, most adults have the emotional maturity of a seven-year-old. They don't quite understand. We don't know how to make sense of what's going on in our hearts, do we? We have a light chuckle in the room because it's true, right? This is something we need to grow in, something we need to learn to understand how the gospel speaks to our emotions. Steve Mizell was, I, I call him my pastor. He's a pastor at Trailhead Church. He used to say all the time that it takes a while for our heads to make sense of our hearts, Corey. You need to slow down. You need to be patient. You need to think about how does your, how is your mind making sense of your heart? Are you allowing your mind to make sense of your heart or are you just responding emotionally? He was growing me in emotional intelligence. And so emotions are important. They are meant to be listened to. Listen, they are not meant to be used as a megaphone. I was like, that's the only thing I can hear is my sadness. The only thing I can hear is my joy. But also emotions are not meant to be stuffed down really, really deep into the dark crevices of your stomach either. They are to be listened to. And so we're going to take the Psalms and we're going to take some time to process through this. And so the hope then over the next nine weeks is to instill in you um, a new spiritual discipline or maybe a renewed spiritual discipline for what's called Meditation. And so meditation is the bridge between Bible study and prayer. If you're a note taker, this is good for you to write down. Meditation, I'm going to slow down here. Meditation is the bridge between Bible study and prayer. Here's what I mean by that. Bible study, whenever you read the Bible and study the Bible, you listen to God speak to you. That is a one-way communication. If you have that on the slide, that would be great. I think you guys might have that. Bible study is you listening to God speak to you. It's one-way communication, right? The Bible is speaking to you. And then there's prayer, which is the next one. Prayer is that you speak to God. So Bible study is God is speaking to you. In prayer, you're speaking to God, and he's also responding to you. Well, meditation is the bridge. And so the med in meditation, you listen to God speak. You speak to God, and then you also learn how to apply what his word says and what he's saying to you to your heart like to your soul. You're actually in meditation. You're taking what you're learning in the Bible and what you're hearing from God, what you're speaking to God, and you're saying, if this thing is true, whatever I'm learning, if it's true, what does it mean for me? Like, what, what is it? Is it actually changing me? Is it giving me a heart of flesh? Like, what do I do with the material or with the things that God is saying to me? That is meditation. That's what we're hoping to grow in over the next nine weeks. So the big idea then, the why is this. The big idea is through meditation, the word of God actually puts on flesh. It's through meditation, through our time, sitting, sitting with the Lord, sitting with the Father, asking him, if what you say is true for me and changing me, right, it actually begins then, the word puts on flesh. It becomes alive to us. It becomes real 
to us. And so there's three points I have for you for today, and then we'll pray, and then we'll hit these points. The points are this, the principle of meditation, the principle, and then the practice. How do we practice meditation? And then the paradox. It's very paradoxical. So, all right, sound good? All right, we are few, and we are quiet today. So I need you all to step up your, your game on talking to me, all right? Let me pray. Thank you. I'm going to pray. And then uh, we're going to hit this thing and I'll set up where we're going for the next two months. God, thank you so much for giving us space to be able to come and gather. Um, I pray that we never take this time for granted as it is uh, one of the few times in our week where meditation actually happens during sermons, during liturgies. We're asking the question, if this is true, what does it mean for me? Outside of this time and probably outside of a missional community gathering, I bet 99% of us rarely take the time to just sit and be still uh, with you. And so, Lord, we we pray that you would help us grow in this discipline over this next nine weeks, help us learn how to engage you, help us learn how to engage our emotions, help us to learn how to listen, uh, to learn how to be a little bit slower. Um, And God, it's going to take every bit of your Holy Spirit to make that possible because we would just straight run ourselves to death for another year and then come back 2023 and think, where'd the year go? And so, God, we pray that you would just help us be patient, give us grace to fail, help point us to your son, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, here we go. Let's hit it. Somebody say the principle. All right, verse 1 says this. Psalm 1, verse 1 says this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates. Somebody say meditates meditates day and night. And so the psalmist, interestingly enough, comes out in Psalm 1 really as an introduction to all the other 150 psalms. And so what the psalmist is saying to us is, hey, if you want to grow in who the Lord is, if you want to understand these psalms, you'll actually take some time and you'll sit with him. Like you'll take some time and you'll meditate. And so the psalmist comes out and he says, there's two types of people that exist in the world. There's the righteous and then there's the unrighteous. And so the psalmist there is just kind of creating this tension for us immediately in the text and immediately in the very first book of all the books that are coming in the Psalms. He's saying, if you want to be holy, if you want to be righteous, if you want to know the Lord, you're going to meditate on his law. You're going to delight in his law. We would say like, well, what's the law? What does that mean? It means you would meditate on God's word. You would delight in God's word day and night. He's saying those who delight, those who meditate, those individuals are righteous. They're growing in their understanding of who God is and what God has done for them. They're growing in their stability. They're growing in their stature and in their structure as those who are righteous. It does not mean they're perfect. It does not mean that they're sinless. What it means is they're willing to take time to set in God's word as someone who believes in God. And he says, and there's another group of people, and that is the unrighteous. And the unrighteous, they do not delight in the law of God. They do not listen to God's word. Rather, and this is interesting, instead of growing in righteousness, they're actually growing in unrighteousness. It's their behavior, their unwillingness to pursue God's word, to meditate on it day and night. It's their unwillingness to do that that actually grows them in further unrighteousness, moves them further away from who God is and what God has done for them. And so if you read this again, if we look at here where it says about this unrighteous, look at the, the, trans- uh, the transition or this progression the psalmist gives us, psalmist gives us in verse 1. He says, blesses the man, verse 1, throw that up before me, blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of 
scoffers. So the psalmist says, blessed is the man who does not do these things, which means then, cursed is the man, cursed is the woman who does do these things, right? That kind of makes sense. You guys tracking with me this morning? Right, well, what, well, what is that? Who does what? Who walks in the counsel of wicked, who stands in the way of sinners, who sits in the seat of scoffers. There's a transition here in the text for walking, standing, sitting. There's a transition as, the, as you walk, stand, and sit, then that's gonna affect your identity, he says. It's gonna move you from being wicked to being a sinner to being a scoffer. So not someone who's just a sinner, but someone who actually scoffs against the Lord. Now we're speaking negatively against God. There's a progression in the text, you're walking shoulder to shoulder. You're standing, looking at one another face to face. You're now sitting with one another. In the Hebrew original, this idea of sit was actually making yourself at home. He's saying cursed is those are those who make themselves at home with the unrighteous, for it just breeds greater unrighteousness. None of this is real top shelf for us, is it? It's pretty bottom shelf stuff, Yes. He's saying that transition, this progression, is what drives identity from wicked sinner to scoffer. He's laying out a progression for us. If you want to progress in unrighteousness, then walk with the wicked, stand with the sinner, sit with the scoffer, just say, hey, make yourself at home to those that speak against the Lord. This is the principle of meditation. The principle is where you spend your time matters. That's what he's saying. How are you spending time? Your time. So if you think about just normal general life, okay? Think about life. We spend the majority of our time with non-Christians, right? We don't spend the majority of our time in this room with people who profess faith to be in Jesus, right? The majority of our time is standing, walking, sitting with unrighteous, with people that don't believe like us or think like us. That's the whole idea of missional community is that we go into places intentionally where we can stand, where we can sit, walk, and where we can sit with those who are unrighteous. The question is, are they having a greater impact on you, or are you having a greater impact on them in light of righteousness in God's mission? So walking, standing, sitting with God, then, must produce righteousness if doing it with non-believers or unrighteous produces unrighteousness. He's keeping it real simple for us still. If we spend the majority of our time with non-Christians, though, walking, standing, sitting with non-Christians, listen, how much more important is it then that we increase our intentionality when it comes to walking, sitting, standing with Jesus? You don't see the value in that time, like the utter importance and necessity of spending time with the Father. 99% of our time is spent with people who don't believe in Jesus, right? So how important is it when you take your 15 minutes out of the day to spend time with Jesus? You just spent 10 and a half hours with people that don't know Jesus, and now you give him a whole 15 minutes on a very good day, maybe in a very good week. Do you not see the importance here of walking, standing, sitting with Christ? You guys are not talking to me. I'm gonna keep saying the same things over and over again <laughs> until you respond to me, okay? Good sermon, bad sermon. Just talk to me if you wanna get out of here before lunch, all right? We can go, I can go all day, all right? Lots to say. Listen, if we spend the majority of our time with non-believers, we should feel the weight of how important it is to spend our time with Jesus with God through setting. The principle that the psalmist is saying is this, where you spend your time matters. Every single minute, millisecond of your life, it matters. Meditation is the means by which God allows us to actually sit with him. It's the means by which the word of God puts on flesh where we sit and we say, if this is true, what does it mean for me? 
Does it have any implications for me? Does it have any application for me as a man who says, I believe in Jesus? Look, you can learn everything in the world about God and not know God. That was the Pharisees in the New Testament. They knew the whole law. They had the whole thing memorized. First five books. Can you even tell me the first five books? They had it memorized. Did not know the gospel. They did not sit with the Father. You tracking? Principle. Where you spend your time matters. Practice then is next. What does this look like to practice these things? Verse three. It says, he, that's the righteous, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Okay, So the psalmist is continue here to uh, draw out this tension in the text first. The first two verses was kind of laying out this tension of the righteous and the unrighteous. These next two verses, verse three and four, are doing the same thing. They're just further pressing us into whether, what does it look like to be righteous? What does it look like to be unrighteous? He says, the righteous are planted like a tree with its roots next to a stream. He's saying there's an unending life support that has been given to the righteous. That stream of water is flowing by them by nothing that they could do. They are just simply tapped into the stream of living water. But the unrighteous, he says, are like chaff. They're simply blown away. And so if you don't know anything about this, when they would harvest wheat, they would literally go beat this wheat on the ground. The shell, the outside of the wheat would actually fall off. They would take something like a big tennis racket and they would shove it down in the threshing floor and they would throw this stuff up in the air. What would happen is that the breeze would carry off the chaff. The breeze would carry away the outer portion of the seed that was there. And so what the psalmist is saying to us is that those who meditate on God's law day and night, they are stable, they are sure, they are steadfast, they are connected to living water. But to those that do not, to those who do not meditate on God's law day and night, to those that do not uh, stand set, walk with the Father, or rather they stand set, walk with those who are unrighteous, they are simply a shell. They are hollow. There is nothing to them. There is no stability. There is no security within them. There is nothing keeping them grounded. The very slightest and lightest breeze will blow them away. Right? There are those who are stable and there are those who are a shell. Think about this with me. If you're always walking, standing, sitting with people who do not delight in the law of God, you can find no stability. There is no stability there. There is no surety there. There's so many different thoughts. There's so many different voices. There's so many different worldviews. There's so many different outlandish opinions that can be given to you. The only thing consistent about those conversations is how inconsistent those conversations are. Think, right? Like the only thing that can be stable is how unstable every single idea can ever be that comes to you in those situations. There's no stability. There's no structure. You're not, uh, be, instead of being plugged into one source, you're plugged into multiple sources, multiple ideas, multiple worldviews, a lot of opinions, a lot of different wisdom. And where do they get this wisdom and this knowledge and this understanding from? They get it from people that are also not connected to Jesus. And so then there's all these different opinions and all these different ideas that are coming at you. Does that make you feel stable? Like when you get on social media, you see all these different opinions about the exact same event. Do you feel stable, church? No, you feel unsure. You feel uncertain. You feel like a shell. Like when you live life apart from God, you feel like a, 
a shell. You're literally a shell of, for who you were designed to be. Hollow on the inside. If you're not rooted, if you're not stable, you're being tossed around like Jess led us to read in the book of James. Tossed to and fro by, other, by every elementary doctrine, stress, anxiety, anger, sadness, fear, joy, happiness are all show, so short-lived you don't know how to make sense of any of them. They just happen all the time. You feel anxious all of a sudden. Then you feel stressed. Then you feel happy. Well, now it's new year, new me. Now I feel this. Last year didn't go away. Oh, no, what am I going to do? There's all this uncertainty and inconsistency in you. It's a, it's a shell. There's nothing on the inside that is filling, not being connected, not meditating, leaves you feeling empty. And you can look at me and tell me you don't feel that way. You don't feel inconsistent. I would ask, whenever COVID hit, Year and a half, going into a whole new year now. When COVID hit, how stable did you feel? Is there a correlation between your fear of that pandemic and your lack of quality time with God and his word? Because there was in our church, for sure. When I looked at the way our church responded, majority of people responded, I could also look at their spiritual disciplines and see, depending on how those folks responded, whether or not they were connected to the vine. Were you going to tell me that I was more fearful because I wasn't in God's word? Yes. It's 100% what I'm going to tell you. Yeah. Because there's an instability that comes. There's a fear that comes. It leaves you a shell, man. It steals your confidence, steals your assurance whenever you're not with him, steals your strength, your posture, your cadence. Like everything is fleeting when you're not in his word. And you might think, well, I don't know. I feel pretty confident. I feel pretty good. I feel, then I would say, then the, then the Lord and his word will make you even more of those things. That's what it does. It brings you stability. Think about, like we see these shells walking around all the time. Think about folks who, um, they only post to social media with a filter. That's a shell, right? What they're saying is, I'm coming at you really confident, but I still have to hide who I actually am. That's a shell. They're empty on the inside. Think about the parent who uh, is always struggling to get from point A to point B. They have no time in their calendar. They're rushed around. They have no time for you. You can't pin them down for a double date. But for some reason, they smile at you while they tell you how busy they are. But you can see the bags under their eyes. That's a shell. Are you with me? They're wore out. They're tired. They're not doing very well. When someone who's experienced death or loss or injustice, some kind of hardship, maybe it was job loss and they're telling you about it, but for some reason they're smiling, that's a shell. Uh, emotional intelligence tells us that whenever I know that you've experienced a terrible hardship and you smile at me while we're talking about it, while tears are running down your cheeks, I need to dig in a little bit deeper because you ain't right. There's something going wrong up there, Right? That's what emotional intelligence teaches. What I'm seeing in that moment is that your head has not made sense of your heart. You have all this body language and all these things that you're saying that are revealing to me you can't make up from down anymore inside of your body. Your head is not making sense of your heart. You're being a shell. They're literally being blown away. That is the unrighteous. Not that everyone who experiences that is unrighteous. I'm just saying those are evidence of unrighteousness. But the righteous, the psalmist says, are stable. They are secure. They are connected to the waters of life, to living water we're going to get to in a bit. Now, the text does not say that everything will go perfect for the righteous. It says that he will prosper. And all that means in there, in the original language, is he will continue to grow. And so what the psalmist is saying is that this tree that is referenced here, that it bears fruit in the spring and its leaves do not wither in the fall. What he's saying is regardless of the season, 
regardless of whether it's barren, regardless if there is a drought, regardless if it's blistering cold outside. It doesn't mean the season is always easy, but growth is possible because they're connected to the living water, because they're meditating on the word of God day and night. And because of their meditation, they will prosper. They can make sense of the events and the occurrences, circumstances as they're coming in the moment because they have a stable, sure foundation in God's word. That's what the psalmist is revealing. When it's barren, whenever it's cold, whenever it's hard, he says the leaves do not change. Why? Because the tree is continuing to grow. My favorite movie we're talking about this morning, one of my favorite movies is Tombstone. Anybody else? Tombstone? It's up to, okay, good. At least you're talking to me. Thank you. Yeah, thought I was by myself again. Tombstone, Doc Holliday, he looks at Wyatt. He says, well, Wyatt, you're an oak. It's one of my favorite lines. He's got like four lines. Everybody knows them. They're on all these t-shirts. What's the psalmist saying? He's saying like, be more than that even. Because an oak in the fall looks dead for as big, beautiful as it is. He's saying, no, like this is an evergreen. There's something different here about this tree that he's referencing. It is always bearing fruit. It is always producing. It is always connected to the source of life. Day and night, the righteous will drink of the law of God and meditate on the law of God. Well, what is the law? It is God's word. Hebrews 4, 12 says this. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 says, for the word of God is living and active. Listen, not if you don't meditate on it. If you just read it and consume a bunch of information and never apply it, you can't actually put it to life. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the attentions of the heart. That's literally meditation. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He's saying the word of God exposes you and it feeds you and it fills you and it keeps you then from becoming a shell. It fills you with everything that you need. It's the only place that we can go. Listen here. The word of God is the only place you can go and not put up a front. It's the only place you can go and it peels back your facade like the skins of an onion. Like you you step into the word of God, right? And it starts to, as you read it, it reads into you. As it exposes itself to you, it exposes yourself to you. Literally, it's the only place you can go and not lie. It knows us. It has us completely and fully figured out. The second thing that's there then is 2 Timothy says this, but as for you, you've continued in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the word, the law, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What's he saying? He's saying that there is a stability that comes from being in the word, that we gotta get into the word, that we need to meditate on it, that we need to literally, to read it, to listen to God. We need to pray God's word so that we can speak to God, and we most certainly need to meditate, to ask the question, if this is true, like when's the last time you just asked? If this is true, how does it affect me? How does it actually change me as a human being, as someone who professes faith in Christ? If it's true, listen, if it's true, this year should look dramatically different than last year. There's no new you, new year. It's ridiculous. If you're not willing to actually set in the word and say, how does this affect me? How does it 
change me. Listen, if this is everything that it says that it is, tomorrow you should look different than you did today. In seven days, you should look different than you did this week. In six months, you should be able to look back and say, man, that's how the Lord was growing and changing me, bringing stability to my life. This is how we find stability is meditating on the word. King David in the Psalms says that his word is like honey on his lips. It's delicious to him, he says. I was reading Tim Keller this week, and he says, if you're not willing to let the word be law, you cannot experience love. If you're not willing, allowing the word of God to be the law of God, you cannot experience the love of God. What was he saying? He's saying if you don't actually read this thing in such a way where you're asking, how does this affect me? How does this change me? You'll continue being a shell. You will not be stable. Think about our our culture right now. Let's get into a little cultural topic. I wrote in my notes, say something about progressive theology. So if we soapbox this for the next 15 minutes, uh, apologies. And so say something about progressive theology. There's this big, uh, progressive theology, if you don't know what that means, is basically this, you should accept anyone, anywhere for anything that they are, no matter what they do. That doesn't even sound um, attractive to me when I say it out loud. But that's progressive theology. It's hot in our culture, and it basically says you should accept everyone, everywhere, for everything, no matter what. The reality is this. If you take that approach to Christianity and to the Bible, you don't view God's word as law. Like, it can't cut you. It can't wrestle with you. There's nothing there to to correct. There's nothing there to be taught. There's nothing there for rebuking, as we just read in the scripture, that God's word should correct, it should rebuke, it should train, it should build you up. But if you are allowed to do whatever you want to do at any given point, then this actually doesn't have any value to you whatsoever. Does that make sense? Like it can't be viewed as law because it's whatever I want it to be. And so now I'm God and it's my word instead of it being God's and God's word. You guys still tracking with what I'm saying? And so the word of God, if it means whatever it wants, then there's literally no value to it whatsoever. It's just another piece of written material that exists out in our culture. It's just another one of the many millions of opinions and ideas and worldviews and frameworks that are being given. But man, but if it is the actual, the word of God is actually the law of God, well, now it can love you. Think about any relationship in your life. Any relationship that is worth its salt, listen, has conflict. Any relationship that is worth enduring, engaging, experience, that's actually loving, it's going to have some conflict. There's going to have some disagreement there. It's actually how you build one another up and sharpen one another, whether you're married or whether you're just great friends with someone. You should have a level of conflict. Whenever you engage God's word, there should be a level of conflict that exists. It actually reveals the beauty of the relationship, that it is the law, and whenever you view God's word as the law, well, then you can experience its love. And now as I engage this word, as we read some scriptures from, from uh, the New Testament, it begins to correct me. It begins to change me. What happens then is it brings stability. But if all I do is find and hear everything that I'm finding out in the world, church, it just leaves me a shell. It still just leaves me ridden with uncertainty and a lack of clarity and no trust. Because how do I trust just another random voice? You still tracking so if you view the cultural word as law, it will leave you a shell. But if you view God's word as law, it brings stability. This is what the psalmist is saying, but you have to spend time with him. This is the practice. The practice is this. You actually need to spend time with God. Cats out the bag, church, room full of Christians, you need to spend time with Jesus. Clear enough? Okay, cool. I feel like if, we, if I would have said the gospel, we could have took communion, but I haven't said it yet. So 
we're getting there. Last one's the paradox, okay? Quickly, somewhat quickly. There's a paradox here in the text. We don't have time to do everything I have in my notes. I'll give you some of it. Uh, Verse five, Karen says this. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the law of the wicked will perish, okay? So what's the paradox? The unrighteous, while they spend the majority of their time standing, walking, sitting with themselves and with people like them, they will not stand, walk, or sit in the congregation of the righteous. That's the paradox of the text. The paradox is that they keep pursuing unrighteousness. They keep trying to fill themselves. They keep trying to fill this kind of God-sized hole inside of their soul with a bunch of things that are actually not filling. And so in their attempt to fill and fill and fill and fill, they actually are just being found empty. They're being found a Shell. The first paradox is that as they're trying to fill themselves, walking, standing, sitting, they are only emptying themselves out further. And the more that they pursue unrighteousness, the more it is revealed to them, none of those things actually work. It's not actually bringing any stability. The second paradox then is if you want to be full as a Christian, you have to actually empty yourself out. So if you want to be full in Christ, you don't pursue filling yourself with a bunch of nonsense. What you do is you just sit at the king's feet like we talked about a few weeks ago. You just sit with him. You lay everything else aside. If if you want to find more time in your life, you set aside time to sit with the king. It'll create more time for you. That is a paradox. To do this, then you have to slow down. If you want to speed up your growth in Christ, you slow down. That's a paradox, right? If, If you want to listen to the Lord, if you want to hear the Lord speak, if you want to speak with God and grow in your communication with the Lord, you have to be quiet. That's a paradox. You have to do the opposite of what we've been taught to do within culture. If you want a heart that delights in the law day and night, you have to delight in God. You don't go to him because you want to get something for yourself. You go to the Lord to get the Lord. And whenever you get him, when you start to see Jesus and who this Jesus is, he begins to change you. You don't change yourself by your religious good works. You set time to be with him, and then he changes you. It's a paradox. Normally, you're taught if you want to get something done, you do it yourself, right? In this case, you don't do that. You go and you sit with the Lord, literally. I mean, just sit with him. Wait, you mean just like sit with him? Yes, you just sit with him and ask, hey, could you change me? I'm, I'm looking to be changed here, like Jess took us through earlier. If you want faith, if you just asked him for it, just go ask him for it. You don't try to do something to stir up all this faith in yourself because you finally got it. No, you just go ask him. Hey, dad, I'm dealing with some stuff here. You think you can handle this for me? And then just watch him do it. If you want to be stable, you look to Jesus. If you want to learn how to meditate on God's word day and night, you can't do it in and of yourself. You look to Jesus who did it perfectly. Do you know that Jesus is the word of God that put on what? flesh, that God held so much value in his word that that he didn't just do away with it or say, hey, progressive theology, just do whatever the heck you want to do and call it whatever you want. He said, no, I am so sure this is the best foundation, not just for our lives, but for all of humanity across every single genre of history that I'm going to literally put flesh on this thing and I'm going to send them into creation. So when you read it and you go, I don't know exactly what that means, you can look at Jesus and you can go, man, that's the word of God. It has flesh on it. Now I know who God is and I know what he means in his word because I can see it. He literally walked among us. 
I love the, the story of this Jesus. He, uh, in John 4, whenever he, um, he sits with a woman at the well, you know, and what's beautiful about that is that, that territory, that Samaritan territory that Jesus and the disciples uh, walked through was considered unclean, okay? And so what that meant was if you were a Jew, you were not allowed to go into this territory. So they would actually walk all the way around Samaritan territory because they didn't want to be considered unclean. And so in this idea that the psalmist gives of those who, uh, those, who, uh, those who walk and stand and sit, what's beautiful about the gospel is that Jesus is the only one who can walk and stand and sit with sinners, and he doesn't make himself unclean, but rather he makes the sinner clean. And so he, the most clean, walks into this unclean territory so that he can bring redemption to this woman that he wasn't even supposed to speak with culturally. And so John 4, 13 says this, pretty cool. Karen, tell that up. It said, Jesus said to her, they're sitting here at this well. Jesus offers her a drink. Let me give you some context. Sitting here at this well, Jesus offers her a drink. And before she can answer, she's, he says, if you knew who was offering you a drink, you would ask me for a drink first, which is pretty Jesus-like of him. And then John 4, uh, 13 says this. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, the water in the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. What's interesting, if we were to keep reading all this within context, Jesus explains he's living water. She doesn't quite get it. Uh, she, doesn't just, she just doesn't want to come back to the well because she had to come out in the middle of the day because everyone who looked at her would have scoffed at her um, because of the situation she was in with having uh, five different live-in boyfriends, basically, is what Jesus says. So the woman looks at her, and she, he says, she says, can I have a drink? And Jesus says, go get your husband. And she goes, well, I don't have a husband. He goes, I know, you've had six, and the one that's with you now doesn't even want to marry you. That's pretty Jesus-like. I don't know about you, that feels confrontational. <laughs> that's what the word of God does, right? So think about it in light of the context of what we're saying. Jesus is literally sitting here with this woman, sitting with the unrighteous, and he's, what are he doing? He's, the word is becoming flesh to her. She says, I want a drink. He says, great, get your husband. She says, I don't have one. He goes, I know, you've had five. And the one that's with you now doesn't love you. What is, what is he saying to her? He's saying, you're a shell. He's saying, think, I mean, think about it in context of this lady, right? She, he's saying, you keep looking for affirmation from all these men. You keep trying to find identity in all these relationships. How's that going for you? The one that you live with now doesn't even want to marry you. What kind of affirming word is that that he's giving you? He's, literally, he's looking at her in a very sweet way, a very direct way, and he's saying, they've only kept you hollow. They've only kept you a shell, but me, I am living water. Like if you drink this water, if you're connected to this water, if your roots are dug in deep to this water, what happens? Stability comes, not a shell, but a strong, stable structure connected to this living water. And so Jesus is sitting there, and look, what's he doing? He's bringing conflict to that relationship. He's bringing, um, he's bringing a word against her that most of you or I in this room would not be like, oh, by the way, that's not going well for you either, you know? But he does, because that's what happens when you sit with the word. It begins to put on flesh, church, and as you meditate upon it and you ask, how does this affect me? What does this mean for me? It actually begins to change us. And so I would, you ask some questions, right? Do you want stability in your life? Do you want assurance in your life? Do you want a confidence that is unfading? Do you want an eternal hope? How do you get that? You plug into this Jesus. 
like, like a tree planted next to a stream, you go all in on it. And you just simply sit with him. Well, how is Jesus the one that gets to do that? Because Jesus is the one that makes the unclean clean. That's the whole point of the story of Jesus going to talk to the Samaritan woman. He doesn't um, stand, walk, sit in this territory and become unclean himself. Jesus didn't have to go do some purification after he went through there like the other Jews, but rather he comes in the only one clean, the word who was put on flesh, enters into an unclean territory, sets with an unclean woman, and he cleans her up. But she has to sit with him for a minute first. She didn't just hear about Jesus and everything in her life changed. She sat with him. It's a picture of meditation, for crying out loud. You see that or no? And the only reason that he's sufficient is not just that he walked in perfection, that's most certainly true, and not just the word put on flesh, but Jesus goes to the cross. What happens whenever Jesus goes to the cross? What is he becoming in that moment? He's becoming the shell. And he's becoming the thing, the very thing that has been sifted away from anything that is good or valuable or tasty. In that moment that Jesus goes to the cross, what is he doing? He actually removes his roots from the stream. Jesus enters into everything that we willingly enter into because we don't want to spend time with Jesus. Jesus, who did not want to enter in that situation, goes to it for us. Why? So that we don't get sifted out like chaff. Jesus becomes the chaff so that we don't have to be the chaff. Jesus becomes disconnected from the Father so that we can be disconnected from the Father. Jesus literally drinks dust so that we who are made of dust might actually experience living water. The only way that we actually can understand what this means, listen, is by taking time to sit with him. So what we're going to do the next two and a half months, and hopefully for the rest of our lives, but specifically the next two and a half months, is we're going to sit in the Psalms. Starting today with meditation, the next two months looking at how, do, how does the gospel, how does the word of God speak to specific emotions. We're going to look at how it speaks to anger, despair, anxiety, joy, laughter, like all these different emotions that can kind of well up and actually physically display themselves. We're going to look at how does the gospel speak to them. We're going to sit with the Father, allow him to minister to us, grow us in emotional intelligence. I don't know about you, but the last two years have been really hard for me. It's been tough, dude. And we stuff a lot, don't we? We stuff a lot down in there deep, just hope one day it works itself out. Or after stuffing for so long, our emotions become so loud, it's the only thing that we can hear anymore. And now I lack empathy and I lack grace and I lack patience towards people that are around me because my voice in my own head is so loud, I literally can't stand it anymore. And if this sermon series is just for me, then I'm going to be doing a lot better in two and a half months. Okay? But we're going to spend time in the Psalms here. And then in your missional communities, I'm gonna, I have a, we have a whole road write-up that we made for you. We're going to spend 15 minutes of every week in our missional communities in silence and solitude. So if you're not yet plugged into an MC, I would encourage you to download the Church Center app, look at which missional community is closest to where you live, and plug into that thing. Uh, and then for the next two and a half months, you know what you're doing. You're going to get there. We're going to have a big meal together. We're going to get separated from kiddos a bit. We're going to take 15 minutes to just sit in this psalm, Psalm 1 this week, with a series of questions to engage. How are we doing emotionally? What does God's word have to say? And then are we actually, how do we actually apply that to our hearts? Meditation. But we're going to do it together as a body. Sound good? All right, stand with me. Let's take communion. That's what I have for you, church. you are not able to grab a communion cup on your way in, uh, please feel free to make yourself to make your way to a basket up here to the front. You can get a cup. Every week we read out of uh, the book of Colossians. Colossians 11, the Apostle Paul 
And he says this. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. At the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as you stand there with communion elements in your hands, I just remind you as I do every week, the uh, bread represents Christ's body that was broken for you in your place uh, as your substitute. It's literally him becoming chaff uh, for you as you hold that element in your hand. And the cup represents Christ's blood that was spilt for you on your behalf, in your place, uh, as your substitute. He didn't do those things so that we could just do whatever we wanted to do, but rather he does those things so that we would look to the cross. We would be reminded of the resurrection. We would see that this word has most certainly put on flesh and the love and the grace and the mercy of God would actually lead us to meditate, uh, meditate on his word uh, day and night. And so for communion, communion is an opportunity then for you to do that, for you to meditate, for you to say, hey, God, if these things I just learned about are true, how does that affect my heart? What does it actually mean for me as a woman? What does it mean for me as a man, as a professing Christian? Even if you're in the room not as a Christian, uh, it gives you an opportunity to say, I don't know that I believe these things. If these things are true, what do they actually mean for me? And then maybe today, as Jess led us earlier, you might pray the prayer of, hey, God, I haven't professed faith in you. I've not meditated on your word. I don't know anything about you, but it sounds a heck of a lot more rewarding than the culture out there does. So maybe today would be the first day you profess faith in me. You guys can take it easy.